Typically in our Reformed churches, we embark on a yearly study of the Heidelberg Catechism going Lord's Day after Lord's Day, 52 of them throughout the entire year. Well, last week we completed our first study, at least together with me, through the Heidelberg Catechism. And I'm excited that this evening we can turn together to consider three of the minor prophets. Three of the minor prophets, Nahum, Habakkuk, and then Zephaniah, and then we'll turn again to the Belgic Confession, another confession of the United Reformed Churches. But so I'd like to invite you this evening to turn with me to Nahum, the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which can be found on page 930 of your pew Bibles. Nahum 1, verses 1 through 8, and we're going to read God's Word this evening under the heading of Destruction and Deliverance. Destruction and Deliverance from Nahum Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's Word this evening. Nahum, beginning in verse 1. An an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He makes a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness." Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. May we receive it with a believing heart. Well, blessed congregation, when someone wants to become a pastor, they have to get used to going to a lot of meetings. You'll have meetings with your professors. You'll have meetings with other pastors called the classes. You'll have meetings, most importantly though, with your own pastor. And when I felt the call to the ministry, and I had meetings with many, many meetings, I should say, with Reverend Mitchell Persaud, my pastor in Toronto, Canada, one of the things that stuck out to me, he said, in your ministry, when you start preaching the Word, week in and week out, do not neglect the minor prophets. He said, do not neglect the minor prophets. Because sadly, in our day, we don't know much about the minor prophets. Well, that's apart from Jonah. We all know the story of Jonah. But we know very little comparatively about the books of Hosea, and Joel, and Amos, and Obadiah, and Micah, and Nahum, and Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These names, likely to some of us here this evening, are even a mystery to us. And this should not be. They have an important message 
for the church even today. They have an important message. Because they prophesied to Israel and to Judah at a unique time in God's redemptive history. They existed in between the giant ministries of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the giant ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. The difference between them and the major prophets, though, is that the major prophets, for the most part, prophesied of judgment to come, but the minor prophets prophesied during judgment executed. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel mostly prophesied of the judgment that was to come. But the minor prophets were living in the time when judgment was being executed. And this is that important message that the church needs today as much as she needed it back then in that day. What we learn most often in these minor prophets, and I don't want to take it away from the major prophets, it's there as well. But what we learn from Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah is that though God's people often abandon Him, He will never abandon His chosen people. How much do we need that message today? That though God's people often turn their back on Him, He will never turn His back on His chosen people. These are questions that we have today, beloved. We look around the world and we see God's judgment. We see His destruction, His wrath poured out on this world. We look around and we see how sin has destroyed so much in our churches, in our culture, and even in our nation, the United States. Maybe in your own life you say, I don't have a home, I don't have a spouse, I don't have a good job, we have this government, and we think, all I see is destruction. Oh, we need the message of the minor prophets just as much as they did. That though this world often abandons God, though sometimes the church looks weak and frail, even in the doom and gloom, the prophets tell us there is a light. And His name is Jesus. They look forward to the Messiah to come who will put this message into focus when He tells His disciples and He says to you and me, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is the message of the prophets. And so this, for the next few months, we are going to take some time out of studying the confessions to consider the prophets of Nah prophecies of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah before we take up the Belgic Confession. May you pray with me that God would give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the minds to understand and hearts to believe God's promises. And so this is our introductory message this evening to this series through the minor prophets, the prophets of to Judah. And we want to see this in three points this evening. Nahum the prophet, point one. God the judge, point two. And then Jesus the Savior, point three. That's Nahum the prophet, God the judge, and Jesus the Savior. First, let's consider Nahum 
the prophet. That's the first thing we're introduced to in this book. Look at the title. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And Nahum's name means comforter. Full of comfort, you could interpret it as. And this was a word in season. Because Judah was in great need of God's comfort. Notice in the title, an oracle. And that word oracle in Hebrew literally it means a burden. A oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, was the capital of Assyria. And you could actually sum up the whole historical setting of the book of Nahum with that one word, Assyria. They were the superpower of the ancient Near East. Centered in Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq and Iran, and it had existed, listen to this, Nineveh had existed 1,000 years before Israel had even come to the Promised Land. You can read about the city of Nineveh all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, verse 12. And what you need to know about Assyria What you need to know about Nineveh is that by the time Nahum is ministering, the northern nation of Israel has already been exiled by Assyria in 722 B.C. They had come in and they had broken everything down and they had taken the people and exiled them to Assyria. And whether you're a biblical theologian, whether you're somebody who studies the Bible, or you're a secular person who's studying history, we all agree that Assyria was unusually violent. They used violent attacks, a violent approach to warfare to try to intimidate their enemies. If you have your Bible open, turn to Nahum chapter 3, where Nahum refers to Nineveh as the city of blood in Nahum 3 verse 1. Nineveh is a city of blood. Chapter 3 verse 19, he refers to Assyria as unceasingly evil. They were very wicked and evil people. We have records that say that when they went into a nation and exiled the nation, they would take the children from the women's arms and they would crush them in front of their eyes. A wicked, evil people. We have records that say they would take these exiles and they would march them from wherever their home was into the capital city of Nineveh, and then they would decorate their city with their bodies. Folks, this is why Jonah didn't want to prophesy to Nineveh. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to go to the baby-killing prisoner of warfare, torturing, city of Nineveh, and then when they repented in sackcloth and ashes, this is why he was upset. How can those people get mercy? How can these evil, wicked, cruel Assyrians receive God's blessing? See, Israel was exiled in 722 B.C. But what you need to know to understand this book is that Judah the people to whom Nahum is prophesying will not be exiled for another 130 years by Babylon. Assyria came in and wiped out northern Israel. And Judah was there watching while it happened. 
Could you imagine being in Judah's shoes? They're different countries. They had different kings, different capital cities. They even had different temples, sinfully. But they were still family. The exile of Israel by the Assyrians was not just a random Middle Eastern nation. This was their friends. This was their family. This was Judah's closest ally. And no one knew this better than Nahum. Look again at that title. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Where is Elkosh? Elkosh is a little village in Galilee which was part of the northern kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it's very possible that Nahum's own family experienced the brutality of Assyria. We don't know this, but was it possible that some of his friends were the people who had their children crushed before their very eyes? Did he have family who were marched to Nineveh to be strung up as decorations. This really sets the scene for the book. The question that he is asking prophetically is, where is God? How can there be a God who allows this evil to happen? The Old Testament says that God is good. That He can destroy the weapons of the enemies. That He stands by His people. How, God, can you let this evil happen to our family? To our brothers and sisters? To our cousins? Nahum is asking, how can you let this happen to me? If you flip back to Micah chapter 6, verse 9, the prophet Micah said in chapter 6, verse 9, that Assyria, verse 9, was the rod of him who appointed it. God was the one who sent Assyria. God was the one who put his people into exile. But Nahum is asking, like this? How can you, God, allow this cruel nation to get away with it? Judah needed comfort. And that's why God sends him, Nahum, the comforter. But notice this, that Nahum's comforting is not going to be that God turns life into a bed of roses. As I said, that word article means, oracle, excuse me, means burden in the Hebrew. A heavy weight laid upon the back that can actually crush you. Nahum is bringing something that will crush the Ninevites. See, the comfort that God provides through Nahum is that he is going to crush Nineveh. He is going to destroy evil. He is going to wipe them off the face of the map. Does that comfort you? Is that something that thrills your soul? Well, the Bible says that this is part of God's redemptive work. Is that not what God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? After sin comes into the world, 
through Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Part of God's redemptive work is that He is going to crush the head of the serpent. That He is going to wipe out evil. That He is going to do away with every bad thing. Beloved, this is one of the reasons the minor prophets may not be neglected. Because in them it is clear that God hates sin. And He still hates sin. It is sin that destroyed God's good creation. It is sin that has brought death into this world. It is sin that brought cancer and murder and rape and terrorism. It is sin that brought that in. It is sin that put His beloved Son on the cross to die for you and me. This is the prophecy of Nahum that sin will be destroyed. As one preacher put it, Nahum's prophecy is described as a burden that will crush the Ninevites. Now there's a lot of doom and gloom here. But by word of application, do you see God's mercy in the fact that He announces that judgment is coming? He is giving them ample time in Nineveh, in Judah, in the Gentile lands to come to Him and to be spared. In the preaching of judgment, in the preaching of the law, God also beckons His people to come and be spared. Now one application that's not in our passage, but I think it's still relevant this evening, is that we think it's been about 200 years since Jonah preached to Nineveh, and they repented in sackcloth and ashes. but Nineveh has rejected God again. This is a scary reminder of what happens when faith is not passed down to our children. Dads, not that salvation rests in our hands, but we need to be a people zealous for the salvation of our families. Christian families, make sure that you are praying together. Make sure that you are reading the Bible and pray for the souls of your children, even in your, coming devo- in your private devotions, that they might run from the coming destruction. Show them that there is a safe place in Jesus. That's what Nahum does. See, the second point, Nahum the prophet, he's bringing his prophecy. Is God the judge? God is the judge of all mankind. Look what he says in verses 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance upon His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. You notice there in those two verses the repetition of God's name. Five times Nahum says, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He is appealing to God's very character. He's saying, God, You are not arbitrary. We do not serve a morally indifferent God. Come and deal with sin, Nahum cries out. And the Bible tells us that God's power is seen in His perfect judgment. See, the the God of the Bible is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is a God of love. 
but he is a God of absolute and perfect justice as well. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, The rock, his work, is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness goes before you. He is perfect in His justice. And perfect justice requires that sins be paid in full. Because if He didn't, He would not be just. See, boys and girls, if you have a brother or sister, and say your brother pokes you or punches you, And let's say your dad saw it and he looked the other way. He didn't do anything. Boys and girls, would that be just? Is that fair? The answer, of course, is no. That's not fair. And that's what Nahum is saying. God, if you are just, do not ignore the sins of Assyria. God, if you are truly just, don't let them crush these little babies. Your covenant children. Don't let them take our people away. God, You are the God of justice. Come! But let us remember that calling upon God's justice is true for both sides. That God will not let sins go in Assyria, but He will also not let sins go in Judah. God will not ignore the sins of this world, but He doesn't ignore our sins either. And so I know we're not preaching on the Heidelberg Catechism this evening, but Ursinus, the author of the Catechism, says that there are two ways God's justice can be satisfied. There are two ways God's justice can be satisfied. God's justice can be satisfied in the legal demands of the law, And he says God's justice can be satisfied in a second way, and that is the Gospel. Two ways. The legal demands and the Gospel. You can either satisfy God's justice yourself, or you can confess your sins and seek cleansing in the blood of Jesus. But in our second point, what we see in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2-6, through is we see all the elements of the legal demands. All the elements of the legal demands are here. You know, the Bible says that if you want to obey God's law, then you're going to have to be perfect. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. God of the Bible requires nothing less than perfection. And when we fail, We are guilty of the whole. And so the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so what happens when God's justice is met in us? What happens when we fulfill the legal demands of the law? Maybe you're here this evening. I've said this before. And you think, I'm pretty tough. I can meet these legal demands. How bad can the curse really be? Well, Louis Burkhoff says, the curse of God is fourfold. And I want to bring these to your attention from Nahum chapter 1. See, the first part of the curse, God's justice, is separation from God. 
First, the prophet Nahum describes in verse 2 spiritual death. He says the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Three times in this passage, he emphasizes the vengeance of God. And God's vengeance is not like our vengeance. A petty squabbling with our neighbors. But God's vengeance is His sovereign right as Lord to repay the wicked for each of their deeds. Our Pew Bible, the ESV, says this, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. And that's a good translation. But a literal translation of the Hebrew is that God is a master of wrath. This is an intense word. It is filled with passion and feeling. It means that when God sees a sin... When God witnesses a a sinner sinning, He is not indifferent. He is not neutral about it. He is filled. He is indignant with wrath. And even if you think you or this world or your enemies are getting away with it, Nahum says you don't. That's what we sang in Psalm 11. God sees all. He knows all. You're not getting away with it. The judge of all the earth has not shrugged it off. He is not indifferent to human sin, but He is full of wrath. This is what it means to be separated from God. Beloved, this is referring to spiritual death. Because it's only in communion with God that we truly live. Sin brings not only the death of the body, but the death of the soul. Humans in the sight of God are not only unrighteous, but also unholy, and this unholiness manifests itself in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, and it separates us from Him. That's the first part of the curse. God's justice. The second thing is the sufferings of life. Louis Burkhoff says God's justice is met in us by the sufferings in this life. You see, every time we have weakness and diseases and pains, that is due to the entrance of sin into this world. That's what Nahum is pointing us to in verses 3-4. through The destructive forces of this world are God's justice. Boys and girls, do you know what verse 3 is describing? It's describing a tornado. His way is in a whirlwind and a storm. The clouds are the dust of His feet. See, when a storm comes, we think, that's random. It's striking here and it's striking there and it seems to have no rhyme or reason. The Bible says that God is even ordering those. Just like when He rebuked the sea and the rivers in Exodus. And even this is part of the penalty of sin. When a tornado comes, verse 3. When a drought comes, verse 4. When there are earthquakes and volcanoes, verse 5. It is a reminder we live in a sin-broken world and the sufferings of life are part of the penalty of that sin. Separation from God. The sufferings of life. And physical death. That's the third of the four. See, it's implicit in our passage. Physical death. The Bible says that the soul who sins shall die. God said after the fall of Adam and Eve, for dust you are and to dust you shall 
return. Because of sin, short of Jesus' return, brothers and sisters, all of us will die. Separation from God, the sufferings of life, physical death. But the fourth thing is eternal death. See, the culmination of God's justice is eternal death. This is an awful reality. When the full weight of God's wrath descends upon the condemned sinner and there is a final separation with God from God forever. That's what verse 6 is describing. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. See, our God is a consuming fire. And in the fierceness of His anger, He will pour out His fury like lava. And He will rain down fire and brimstone like He did on Sodom and Gomorrah. And His anger will be so fierce, Nahum says, that even the rocks, the most immovable parts of the earth, cannot bear it and split and crack before Him. See, sinners are just like stubble. Boys and girls, you know, after the harvester comes through and it cuts all the corn down and there are those little stumps left of corn. He says, that's what we're like before the Lord. Little dry stumps. The Bible says we're like wax before Him. We just, we just melt. We fall apart. And so the question The answer to Nahum's two questions, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The answer is no one. We cannot bear his justice. We cannot resist his justice. What Nahum is describing here is hell. And so Matthew Henry says, hell is the fierceness of God's anger. And the Scriptures say of this dreadful truth, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Does it scare you? Because it's supposed to. These are the legal claims of God's justice. And they can be be met and can be satisfied in us beginning now and for all eternity. The Bible is clear that God's people do not need to despair. There is another way that justice can be satisfied. There is another way that the legal demands of God can be met. And that second way, your sinus says, is the Gospel. See, let's look at our third point. Jesus the Savior. See, there are two things made clear about the Lord in this passage. First, He hates His enemies. But He loves His people. See, all humanity stands guilty before Him, yet He graciously, mercifully, holds out salvation, the possibility of salvation to Him alone. Remember we read in Romans 10, He says He holds out His hands all day long. Come to Me. Come 
And you will not endure that day of wrath. You will not endure that day of hell. This is what it means in verse 2. God is jealous. We have to be careful here. Because jealousy in you and me often comes from a place of suspicion. Comes from a place of insecurity. But jealousy in its essence, its purest form, is when someone is committed to maintaining the integrity of a relationship. And when Nahum calls God a jealous God, he is saying that he will do whatever it takes. He will do what he has to to maintain the commitment that he has made to his people. I will never leave you or forsake you, said the Lord. And one of the greatest examples of this, one of the greatest examples of God showing mercy and being patient with His people so that He might show them grace is in the Exodus. Do you remember that story? God miraculously rescued His people from Pharaoh. Brought them through the Red Sea. He took them to Sinai. You remember what they said to Pharaoh? Let us go to Sinai so that we might worship you. And then they get to Sinai and what do they do? Aaron starts gathering all the gold and he crafts a calf and tells the people, this is Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Worship Him. Idolatry. And God says to Moses, He says, I've had it with these people. I'm sick of them. I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. And I'm going to start again. We'll start a new promised people, a new chosen people with you. And Moses falls flat on his face. And he prays that God would relent. That He would show the people mercy. That He would show the people grace. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, we read these words. God passed before Him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He reveals His heart to Moses. He could have punished Israel. He wanted to punish Israel. But because of the ministry, because of the intercession of a mediator, God shows mercy and grace. Look at Nahum 1 verse 3. God is slow to anger. Great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He's drawing on that story. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's saying, Nineveh deserves judgment. And so do we, Israel and Judah. But because of an intercessor, because of a mediator, God is merciful and gracious. And the mediator, Nahum says in verse 7, is the Lord Himself. Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good. 
The Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. This is the second way justice can be satisfied. That the Lord Himself be the stronghold in the day of trouble. That when the wrath pours out, when the lava comes down from heaven, when the fire and brimstone come down, that His people run to Him. That they shelter themselves in that stronghold of God's mercy and grace as we sing in that old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What Nahum is saying is that God is the one who will bear the wrath for you. He will take all of the trouble upon Himself. All of the justice. He will take the separation from God. He will take the sufferings of life. He will take physical death. He will take eternal death so that we can take refuge in Him. So how do you answer the question in verse 6? Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? There is one who can. There is one who can stand before the judgment seat of God and not melt. And not be burned up. And it is the one who is clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Who by His own gracious act voluntarily identified Himself with humanity that He might live a perfect life of obedience to the Father. That He would go to the cross, even dying upon a cross, though He was born without sin. He would give it all up for our purity. And in so doing, He would remove the barrier of sin. He would remove death and hell. And He would reconcile us to God. Make no mistake, beloved. He was destroyed so that we could be delivered. This is how God can be both the destroyer and the deliverer. The just and the justifier. The God of wrath and the God of grace. That they are both met in our stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord Jesus Christ. So both demands are before you today. The legal demands and the Gospel. God's justice will be satisfied, Nahum says. He will crush the sinner. But today if you flee to refuge in Jesus, you will know that He was crushed for your sake. And you can be forgiven. You can be made pure. And you can know that you will be delivered on the day of His appearing. One final application. We, like Judah, do not always see justice in this life. We look around and we see many evils, but we can pour into the bosom of God the difficulties which torment us. And we can know and rest assured that one day, justice will be paid in full. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophecy of Nahum that we're able to gather together this evening and to study it. And we thank you, Lord, uh, that you are the judge. 
that you prophesied so many thousands of years ago that you would crush the head of the serpent. And Lord, we know that this day will come. But we pray, Lord, that we might not be numbered among the evil one of Satan himself, but we might be numbered among those who have fled to refuge in Jesus, who are trusting in him alone, and who know that though he was destroyed, that we will be delivered because of his blood, because of his intercession for sinners such as us. In his name we pray. Amen.